0: Only Scripture teaches us, and gives us, the wisdom to embrace salvation through Jesus Christ. Addressing the young pastor Timothy, Paul reminds him, You have been taught the Holy Scriptures from childhood, and they have given you the wisdom to receive the salvation that comes by trusting in Jesus Christ. The Apostle Peter would concur with the Apostle Paul, For Jesus is the one referred to in the scriptures, where it says, the stone that you builders rejected has now become the cornerstone. There is salvation in no one else. God has given no other name under heaven by which we must be saved. Jesus teaches us the way of salvation and it begins with faith in him. All of Scripture, Old Testament and New Testament, points to Jesus Christ as the source of salvation. For this reason, we must know Jesus according to Scripture and thereby become one with him.
1: Well, we uh, are talking about the truth uh, the question is, what is the truth? And the Bible makes it very clear that the truth is, first of all, Jesus Christ himself. That's That was his own self-professed name. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to God the Father except through Jesus Christ. Well, I want to just jump right in this morning. And I'm going to just warn everybody, this morning is going to be a little bit more uh, shall we say complicated than usual? And uh, but I'm—I've got full confidence in the people of Cross Church. Cross Church people are are smarter than average church people, so I'm—I'm—I'm—I'm I'm, I'm, I'm confident that you'll have no problem catching on to everything that I'm going to say. But I want you to have your Bibles ready, and if you can, to follow along and uh, and be prepared to underline or circle those passages that especially uh, speak to you. Now. I want to jump right in with sharing this passage of scripture this is our text from today you know we're studying second timothy chapter 3 and we are looking today at verse 15 this is our text and can i just remind everybody please shut your phones off um, and get in the habit of bringing your bible to church so, so that you are focused on scripture focused on the lord how many know that hearing the word of God is part of the worship experience. Everybody know that? It's, it's, it's how we worship God, by hearing his word. And we don't want you to be distracted by your friends or by business or by, by family or anything else. Just, just just shut yourself in with God alone for one hour, okay? Sound good? Everybody in agreement? All in favor, say Aye. aye. All opposed, out. <laughs> no, I'm just joking. Okay, so here we are. The Apostle Paul says to Timothy, You have been taught the Holy Scriptures from childhood, and they have given you the wisdom to receive the salvation that comes by trusting in Christ Jesus. So, what we want to do first of all is we want us to focus on the Holy Scriptures, because the Apostle Paul says that the Holy Scriptures have been given to us so that we would have wisdom for salvation. How many know how important it is to be saved? Does everybody understand that it's important to be saved? If you're not saved, then what happens? That's right. That, thank you for putting it so bluntly. I thought you might say we go to heaven, but but you're correct. That's exactly right. We need to be saved. We are lost. That's why Jesus said he came to this earth to seek and to save what was lost. We need to be saved. And we can't save ourselves. We talked about that last week. We don't have the ability to save ourselves. We need the salvation that comes from Christ. And the Holy Scriptures are what revealed to us how to be saved. Okay, so let's just quickly be reminded of of what we mean when we're talking about Holy Scriptures. The Bible comes from the Greek word, which means the books. And sometimes we refer to the Bible as the Scripture or the Holy Scripture. Holy Scripture is, it comes from the Greek graphi," uh, which means the holy writings. Uh, sometimes we call it the word or the word of God or the word of truth. All of these words mean the same thing. All these words, all these titles all refer to the scripture. Sometimes we call it the law, which is the Torah and the prophets. Jesus said and that he has come not to do away with the law, but to fulfill the law and the prophets. Uh, sometimes we refer to the scripture as the Old and New Testaments. Uh, it's sometimes called the truth. And in fact, we understand that Jesus is the word. That's what John says in John chapter 1. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. And of course, Jesus says that he is the truth. So we all understand this morning what the Bible is. We understand it's the holy writings, and you're gonna find out more about that in just a few moments. So we've been talking about the word of God as truth. But the question this morning is this, where did it come from? And who says that this is the holy word of God? Who says this is the word of God? Who says that this is the truth? As Christians, we understand that the scripture is the authoritative word of God. It is the absolute authority. Did everybody hear that? It's not a authority or an authority. It is the authority. We don't listen to the writings of anybody else. We don't listen to the traditions of of a church. We don't listen to the Pope. We don't listen to uh, the angel Moroni which is where the Mormons uh, got their supposed truth, which is no truth at all. We listen to the word of God only, and this is the only authority by which we live our lives. And everybody who is part of what we call God's people, they understand the scripture as the final authority. So look at this, folks. We don't say, I've got my Bible and I've got this or this and this and this. It's just the Bible. The Word of God alone is the authority that tells me how to live my life. Is that clear? Everybody gets that. Okay, and I'm gonna tell you in a a moment why that is so. Why is the Scripture the only authority by which we live our lives? So what we're gonna do is I'm gonna just show you this morning, just introduce you to the, the question of where do we get our scriptures from? What is, what is the scriptures? And here's what you're gonna, you're gonna recognize, that the Bible is not like other books. So there are many, many books written in ancient times and you, you see the books of Homer and, and you see the books of uh, the writings of Aristotle or Plato and the and, and Cicero and on and on and on. These are these are interesting ancient books, but they're not the Bible. They're not on a par with Scripture because the Scripture, as we'll see, comes from God. It is the revelation of God. So I'm going to give you a very quick review of the canon of Scripture and how did the canon of Scripture come to be. When we talk about the canon, because I know some of you are wondering, oh, what's the canon? I don't know what the canon is. Is that balls in there and then, and then fire them off and kill enemies. No, the canon, it simply means the list, the list of the scriptures, the list of the books of the Bible. That's all it is. So how do we come up with the 39 books in the Old Testament? How do we come up with the 27 books in the New Testament? Well, this morning, I want to look at the 39 books of the Old Testament to help us to understand it. And the first thing that we need to understand is that when Moses led Israel out of Egypt, what did he do? He brought them to Mount Sinai. And what happens at Mount Sinai? Moses goes up the mountain to meet with God and God with his own finger writes out the 10 commandments in rock. You remember that. Here's what it says in Exodus 31:18. When the Lord finished speaking to Moses on Mount Sinai, he gave him the two tablets of the covenant law The tablets of stone inscribed by the very finger of god so this now my friends is the beginning of holy scripture of holy writings it's holy because it comes from god who is separate from this world he's not like anything of this world he's pure he's holy and all god's people are to be holy and how are we holy by knowing the holy scriptures now After that happens, here's what happens Exodus 24, verse 4. It says, Then Moses carefully wrote down all the Lord's instructions. Early the next morning, Moses got up and built an altar at the foot of the mountain. Now, everybody just look at me for a moment because you need to understand something. I don't have time today to show you how every one of the books of the Old Testament was included in the canon or in the list of Old Testament books. But I want to, what I want to do is I want to show you how every one of these books meets the criteria to be included in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, we find history. In the Old Testament, we find uh, we find the the habits of God's people, the the worship habits, the worship techniques of the people of God. And we find the observations and the interpretations of what this history means. This was uniquely put forward by the prophets. So I want you to see this. In Old Testament times, there's a prophet, there's a priest, and there's a king. The king leads God's people. and, And before there were kings, there were what? There were judges. You remember that? Joshua, judges. And then Samuel comes along, and the people of Israel say, we don't want... We don't want just a judge. We don't want just a prophet leading us. We want a king. And so God gives Israel their kings. And there's priests. The priests are the ones that oversee the sacrifices of the people so that people can have their sins covered, their sins atoned for. When their sins are atoned for, then they can have oneness with God. And then there's the prophet. And his job is to interpret what's happening in the land, what's what? What does it mean when the king does this, and what does it mean when that's happening, and what does it mean when 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 various things take place? Well, here's what you need to know: is that all of the scripture has got the touch of the prophet of God, the one who hears from God. In fact, here's what Amos says. In Amos 3, verse 7, for the Lord God does nothing without revealing his secrets to his servants, the prophets. Now, the Bible is history, obviously. The Bible is, uh, is law. It tells us the, the, the expectations of God. But then it has something else. It has something that's very unique and we call it the insights as offered by the prophets. What does all this mean? When we get to the end of the Old Testament, you know the the last three books of the Old Testament, right? Haggai, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. The last prophet who speaks in the Old Testament is Malachi, and he speaks in 435 BC, 435 years before Christ comes. These are the last prophets. Right after Malachi, we see what is called the 400 years of silence. The Jewish people called it the silence of heaven. What do we mean by that? Well, during those 400 years, there is no thus saith the Lord. Did you get that? When you hear thus saith the Lord, that is God speaking through his prophets. But after Malachi, there is no more. Heaven is silent. There's no prophets and the people of Israel are just like waiting for a word from God. Now that's not to say that there weren't books written. There were a number of books written after Malachi. But none of the Jewish people, none of the Jewish leaders or rabbis would recognize that any of those writings were in fact inspired by God. None of them were considered to be the word of God. Let's take Maccabees for example now some of you if you're from a Roman Catholic background you'll you'll have learned or you'll have a Bible the the Jerusalem Bible that will have what's called the Apocrypha I'll explain more about what that is in just a a, a moment and one of those books in the Apocrypha is is Maccabees in first first Maccabees chapter 4 verses 45 to 50 to 46 written in 164 BC it says that that the altar of God in Jerusalem was defiled by the pagan invaders. And the leaders of Israel didn't know what to do about that. Should we, should we destroy this altar, this altar that was used for giving worship to God? And it says very precisely in 1 Maccab- Maccabees four forty five to 56, that they, they disassembled the defiled altar and they put it away somewhere and they are going to wait now until a prophet from god came along to tell them what to do they didn't know what to do because there was no prophet now this is critical to understand because for some people they think well you know what about these other other translations what about these other uh, not translations? what about these other books How come they're not included in the canon of Scripture? And it's because we recognize there was no stamp of approval from any prophet. Now, this is really important. Just watch this. The Jews and the Protestants have embraced the canon of Scripture as we know it in the Old Testament. Josephus, who was a Roman Jew, who happened to be historian, writing in the first century, he's the one that, that tells us that this is, in fact, the canon of Scripture. There's no other book that is included in that. We don't have more than 39. We don't have less than 39. But, but it's clear to all who are God's people that this is, in fact, the final canon of Scripture, starting with the Pentateuch, which Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, Ruth, 1st and 2nd Samuel, 1st and 2nd Kings, 1st and 2nd Chronicles, Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, and so on and so forth. This is it. This is the canon of scripture. The other books are not included because there was no prophet of God to put a stamp of approval on it. So none of the apocryphal books were acknowledged to be revelation with, from God. Now, I want you to keep this in mind because I'm going to come back to this in a few moments it's, and it's going to blow your mind. Here's what you need to know. The New Testament quotes from all, all the scriptures. There's like 295 quotations and maybe more that comes from the Old Testament as we know it, but none from the Apocrypha. So we know that this, in fact, is the word of God. Now, here's, what I th- here's, here's where it gets really, really cool. This is really cool. I'm so excited about sharing this with you. We get to the end of the Old Testament. We come to the book of Malachi. We're looking at Malachi chapter four and looking at verses five to six. I want you to hear the very last words of the prophet of God before the beginning of the 400 years of silence. What Malachi is sharing And he's sharing, it says, God speaking through Malachi. God is saying, here's when you will know that the 400 years are over. Of course, they didn't know it was going to be 400 years, but now looking back, we can say this. Here's how you'll know that the heavens are no longer silent. God says, look, I'm sending you the prophet Elijah before the great and dreadful day of the Lord arrives. His preaching will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers. Likewise, I will come and strike the land. Otherwise, I would come and strike the land with a curse. In other words, God's saying, You will know when the years of silence have ended because a prophet will appear, a prophet like Elijah. It's not a reincarnation of Elijah, as some have foolishly thought. That goes against everything in Scripture. But no, it's one who is like Elijah. And now watch this. This is where it gets cool. Suddenly, John the Baptist appears and is preaching in the wilderness. And now the word is getting out, and everybody in Israel is hearing there is a prophet. After 400 years of silence, finally there is a prophet among us. And you can imagine the excitement. People are leaving their homes and they're making their way to the wilderness because they want to hear the prophet of God. They know that when the prophet comes, something special is about to happen. One like Elijah has been here, is here amongst us. And watch what it says in Matthew 3, 1 to 3. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. This is he who has spoken through the prophet Isaiah. Watch this. A voice, this is a direct quote from Isaiah 40, verse 3. A voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. Well, they're talking about John the Baptist. This this prophet that Isaiah is speaking of is none other than the Elijah that Malachi has been speaking about in Malachi chapter four. Israel knows something very special is happening here. It's a new day in Israel. For over 400 years, the people of Israel have heard nothing from God and suddenly the prophet appears. And I want you to know something. Jesus himself confirms that John the Baptist is the Elijah that Malachi was telling them about. You can read that yourself in Matthew chapter 11, verse 10. John is the Elijah. John is the fulfillment of Isaiah 40, verse 3, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. What what, what did John do? He prepared the way for Jesus Christ. Now watch this. It says in verse 5 of Matthew chapter 3, people went out to him from Jerusalem and all Judea and the whole region of the Jordan, confessing their sins. They were baptized by him in the Jordan River. This is a fulfillment of what Malachi says is going to happen. They didn't know when it was gonna happen, but we know now that it would be four over 400 years after Malachi gave that utterance. The people's hearts were turned to God. It says his preaching will turn the hearts of fathers to their children. What does that mean? It means now that the that, that, that Jewish men are once again concerned about the spiritual welfare of their children. That is a sign of revival. And that the children are responding to their fathers. This is very exciting. Israel has finally got a prophet. After 400 years. And then we read down in verse 13 of Matthew chapter 3. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by John. But John tried to deter him, saying, I need to be baptized by you. And do you come to me? And then you know what happens next. Jesus gets in the water and is baptized, and suddenly, The spirit of God, like a dove, comes and alights on his shoulder. And there's a voice from heaven saying, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Do whatever he says. Jesus Christ is the one who would come. Jesus Christ would be the one that would come with the message of salvation. Now imagine for a moment the excitement in Israel. That would be like us hearing nothing from God. nothing exciting happening since, well what year did I, I figure out? It would be like nothing happening since 1586. Does anybody even know what happened in the year 1586? I, I don't know. I didn't even check. But all these years of nothing, and then suddenly this great revelation from God. It's none other than Jesus Christ himself, the Messiah, the one that all of Israel has been looking for. And this is why when you read in the Gospels about the birth and the life of Jesus, it's always followed by these words. They say Jesus was, was born in Bethlehem and all of this occurred to fulfill the Lord's message through his prophet. It's a fulfillment of the prophecies. Now, I told you I was gonna come back to the Apocrypha. Why does the Catholic Bible have the Apocrypha and why does our Bible not have the Apocrypha? If you have a Jerusalem Bible, you'll see these extra books that we never refer to. I never preach out of it. I maybe will mention it once or twice for historical reasons because it's a great, they're great, a lot of them are great history books, but we don't recognize them as inspired Word of God. Well, if we go back to 1546, there are was a council held. It's called the Council of Trent. Now, why did the church convene? Why did the Roman Catholic Church convene this special council of Trent? Well, it was in direct response to the Reformation. Remember, Martin Luther rose up and he said, that's it. I, this is all I can take. I can't stands no more and he nails the 95 Theses to the door of the church in Wittenberg and says, here's what's wrong with present-day teaching of the Roman Catholic Church. Well, it started what we call a protesting or a Protestant Reformation. It was a protest against the wrong teachings of the church. Now, watch this, everybody. You need to get this. If the Roman Catholic Church had been faithful to Scripture, faithful to this book, not adding to it and not taking away from it, do you know that we would all be Roman Catholic today? But because they drifted away and because popes came along and said, you know what, my word is just as important and even more important than Scripture. Remember I talked about that priest last week? Who said it's more important the law of the pope is more important than the law of god and this made william tyndall go crazy he, he's not standing for that and he said no we need to put the scripture in the hands of all the people so that everybody can see for this, for themselves what the truth is wow the roman catholic church wasn't going to sit back and do nothing you see some of the new teachings of the church which were not historical to to Christianity was one you could pray for the dead that's not biblical that's not in our scripture it's not in our canon of scripture another thing that they taught was that you could make offerings to get the dead out of out of hell we call that the selling of indulgences very poor people who wants to see their loved ones Uh, suffer in purgatory. But if you gave the right amount of money, you could spring them out of purgatory and they'd go right to heaven. Not biblical. Another, and this is probably the most important one, in fact, I believe it is. They they taught that a man or a woman could be justified with God, made right with God, not just by faith in Christ, but by doing good works. This is what Martin Luther rose up and said, "Uh uh-uh. This is not in the Bible. In fact, folks, I'm going to encourage you to read through the book of Romans. You'll see for yourself that a person is made right with God. You are born again. You become a Christian, not through your good works, but through putting your faith in Jesus. You say, well, are good works not important? Of course they're important. Listen, 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 listen. Your good works are the evidence that you're born again. The evidence is you put your faith in Jesus and that you have the Holy Spirit living in you is that you're now doing good works. But your good works will not get you to heaven. I don't care how good you are. And I hear people say that all the time. I'm a good person. I don't know why you're saying that. No, you're not. The Bible has declared there's none righteous. No, not even one. There's nobody who seeks after God. But the Roman Catholic Church was preaching by this time that we are justified, that is, we're made right with God through our good works, which brings us back to the Apocrypha. So some of the Catholic theologians could find in the Apocrypha verses that supported their false teaching. And that, my friends, is why the Roman Catholic Church today still embraces the Apocrypha, which we reject. Now look at this. We are embracing the Holy Scripture as handed down to us. And I will tell you this, the Jewish people, they see exactly the same things that we see as Protestants, that the Scripture as we know it, these 39 chapters are of God. You can say, well, Pastor Allen, how did this, how, like what else? Like how did they even, how were they even aware of the Apocrypha? Well, back in 400 AD, St. Jerome was commissioned by the Pope at that time to translate the scripture into Latin. He says, get a hold of the Greek New Testament, get a hold of the Hebrew Old Testament, and put it in Latin. And uh, the Pope said, oh, and by the way, I want you to include the Apocrypha. And St. Jerome said, no, I'm not going to do that because it's, it's not the true word of God. It's historical books, useful books, but not the word of God. The Pope says, no, you're going to put it in there. Jerome said, no, I'm not. The Pope said, yes, you are. But Jerome said, okay, now I want you to see something. Up until 1546, there's no Roman Catholic that would have seen the Apocrypha as the Holy Scripture. Now remember, the test of whether or not the books of the Bible are in fact Holy Scripture is whether or not it has the stamp of approval of the prophet. None of those books of the Apocrypha have the stamp of approval from the prophet of God. Now, I haven't got time to get into it today because I could keep you here for days explaining and describing to you how the canon of Scripture came to be. But I can tell you that right back to the first century, the Jewish people have embraced the 39 books of the Old Testament as we have done. Now, I want you to see something here. We get to the second half of this verse, and it says that the Scriptures were taught to you Timothy, from your childhood, and they have given you the wisdom to receive the salvation that comes by trusting in Christ Jesus. Watch this. At this time, we don't have the canon of the New Testament, which I'm going to talk about next week. We only have the canon of the Old Testament, and yet Paul is saying that the Old Testament has got the wisdom, it gives you the wisdom to receive salvation that comes by trusting in Christ Jesus. Is Christ Jesus mentioned in the Old Testament? You better believe it. And this is what a lot of people don't know. In fact, I, 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 re- I remember getting a New Testament when I was in grade five from the Gideons. It was just the New Testament. Can I just tell you something? The Bible is incomplete without the Old Testament. You need both the Old and the New Testament because everything in the Old Testament is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is a fulfillment of the Old Testament, of the law and the prophets. So Paul is saying, Timothy, the Old Testament, it gives you the wisdom that makes it possible for you to receive salvation that comes from trusting in Christ Jesus. Now watch, this is just, this is blow you away. Do you know that there are over 300 Old Testament passages that foretell the coming of Christ? even down to such minute details of, of where Jesus will be born in Bethlehem, about what his lineage will be. He'll be born of the line of David, of, his, of his, uh, the method of his execution, the cross. And by the way, if you haven't read Isaiah 53, that is what we call the gospel of the Old Testament. It's a description of the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. But wait, there's more. This whole Old Testament is telling us about the coming of the Messiah. Now, I got I to point something out to you. Without the New Testament, nobody could understand who Jesus was and what he was going to do. They didn't understand it yet. It was still what we call a mystery. Nobody understood what was going on here. And by the way, the Old Testament alone is incomplete without the New Testament. The New Testament shows us of how the Old Testament, the law and the prophets are fulfilled. You can read and you must read from Genesis to Revelation and you'll see Jesus Christ throughout. We sometimes call it the crimson cord that is... The, the, the redemptive work of Jesus Christ from Genesis to Revelation. And it begins, my friends, in Genesis chapter 3. Did you know that? It's called the proto-evangelium, the first evangelistic message. We find it in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, and here's what it says. And I will cause hostility between you and the woman. God's speaking to the snake. And he's speaking to the snake for our benefit. I will cause hostility between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. Watch this. And who's the woman? It's, it's the Virgin Mary. And who's the offspring? Jesus Christ. And what will he do? He will crush your head, Satan, but you'll strike his heel, but he'll crush your head. How many know today that Satan is a defeated foe, defeated by Jesus Christ at the cross? Oh, Satan struck out at Jesus thinking, I finished him off. What he didn't know is that because Jesus was the perfect man, he was gonna resurrect from the dead. And now Satan knows, uh-oh, I'm in big trouble. I thought I could wipe out Jesus. But there is no power that could keep Jesus down because he is the son of God. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. That's the first evangelistic message. It starts in Genesis chapter 3. But wait, there's more. We come to Genesis chapter 10. Now, I don't have time to go throughout the whole Old Testament. I'm only touching on Genesis. That's all I got time for this morning. We get to Genesis chapter 10, and we have what's called the table of the nations. Listen to what it says in Genesis ten thirty-two. These are the clans that descended from Noah's sons, arranged by nation according to their lines of descent. All the nations of the earth descended from these clans after the great flood. If you stop to count the nations, you'll see that there are 72, depending on whether you use the Hebrew or use the Septuagint. It doesn't matter. Some say 72, some say 70. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter, and you'll see in just a moment. And then you get to, you say, well, Pastor why are you telling us this? So you'll see. Then we get to Genesis chapter 11. What happens at Genesis chapter 11? Well, the people have gathered together. They don't need God. They're greater than God. They're smarter than God. And we're going to build a tower that reaches to the heaven. We can worship and we don't need God because we're self-sufficient. Hey, does that sound like, like humanity in 2021? We don't need God. Don't need God. We can survive without God. God's a crutch. God's a figment of your imagination, and this is where the people had come. So what happens, folks? God comes in, and he confuses their language, and watch this. He scatters the 72 nations throughout the world, and they all have their gods and their, their idols and, their, and their, their lying spirits that go with them. Now, I want you to see something. All these nations have their own gods And you could say, well, what about the God of Israel? Well, that's a good question. Because you see, in Genesis chapter 10, the table of nations, there there is no nation of Israel yet. Why is that? Because in Genesis chapter 11, God rejects all the nations of the world. He says, I am done with all of you. I don't want any of you. You're all wicked. You're all sinful. None of you seeks after me. None of you is righteous. So you know what God does? Well, you find out in Genesis chapter 12, God creates a brand new people for himself. He calls out Abraham and says, Abraham, I'm going to create a brand new nation through you. Now, Abraham had no idea really what was going on. But God says, look into the heavens. and You see all the stars? That's how how many your offspring will be, more than you can possibly count. Israel is created through the line of Abraham. Israel, in case you don't know it, is Abraham's son. There's Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, also called Israel. Now watch this. Genesis chapter 12, verse 3. This is so cool. God says to Abraham, I will bless those who bless you, and I'll curse those who treat you with contempt. And watch. All the families on earth, all the nations, all the 72 nations of the earth will be blessed through you. What's he saying? Abraham, through your seed, through your offspring, the Messiah will come. And the Messiah will gather to himself people from all nations. My friends, that's why when you read the book of Revelation, it makes it goes to great pains to point out that people of all nations will be worshiping before the throne of God. Now, let's go a bit further on in Genesis. God raises up Moses, who delivers Israel out of Egypt. And... Moses receives the first installment of the Holy Scriptures at Mount Sinai. We call it the Ten Commandments, and we call it the Pentateuch. The Pentateuch is the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And in that, we find the sacrificial system and the law of God, which is enshrined. Watch this. This is going to blow you away, which is enshrined as a shadow of what's to come. Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of that sacrificial system. Does anybody remember what happened before Israel left Egypt? Just bef- the night before, it's called Passover. Remember that? And all of Israel has to, has to kill a little lamb and take the blood and put it on the doorpost and on the lintel. So the, right here, it's here and here and here. Did you see the cross there? Put blood on the doorposts and on the lintel. And when the death angel comes over, you will not be touched. That sacrificial lamb was looking forward to the future when Jesus Christ would come and be the sacrificial lamb. And by his blood, you and I would be protected against the death angel. Yes, hallelujah. Hallelujah. You get chills going down your spine. I do. I've I've said this this morning. I'm saying it again. I got chills going all over me. Jesus Christ is in the Old Testament, it makes you wise for salvation so that you trust in Jesus Christ. And watch this. Moses, he tells the children of Israel, the day is coming. Deuteronomy 18:18, 18, 18, "I will ri- raise up for them a prophet like Moses from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth and he will tell them everything I command him." Who is that? It's Jesus. Deuteronomy 18:18. 18, 18. And then we get to John chapter one, verse 29. I don't know about you, but this is gonna blow your mind. John gets a glimpse of Jesus walking towards in John chapter one, verse 29. And, And here's what John says. Behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The very Passover lamb When you put your faith in Jesus, my friends, his blood protects you. He protects you so that you have eternal life. You escape death, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. We get to Luke chapter 9 and Jesus tells the people, I'm going to die. I'm going to die. And his disciples, no, 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 Jesus. You're all mixed up. You don't know what you're talking about. Imagine telling Jesus that. You're not going to die. You're going to be the next king of Israel. Jesus, yeah, I'm going to be the next king of Israel, but not the way you think. I'm coming to dwell in people's hearts, not reign over this country. This is all going to perish. This is all going to pass away. No, I've come to dwell in people's hearts. So Jesus says, I'm coming to die. How many know today that nobody took Jesus' life? Jesus laid it down. He said that. He said, no one takes my life. If you think you're taking my life, sucker, you got another thing coming. I'm paraphrasing a bit. Nobody took Jesus' life. He said, I freely laid down my life. I gave my life joyfully. For the joy that was set before me, I laid down my life. And then we get to Luke chapter 10. Oh, this is so cool. Remember, remember Genesis chapter 10, the 72 nation? John, Luke chapter 10, verses 1 and 2, it begins like this. After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them out two by two ahead of him to every town and place where he was about to go. And he told them, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. What is Jesus doing here? There's no coincidence that we read of the 72 nations in Genesis 10, the 72 nations that God has rejected he said these are not my people i have to establish my own people and then suddenly we find jesus sending out 72 what is he doing he's putting satan and heaven and hell and all of humanity on notice i've come to take back the world hallelujah i've come to take it all back God ditched you people because of your sin and your wickedness, but I've come now to take it all back. Whoa. Anybody excited about this? Wow. He is signaling to the powers of heaven and hell. I've come to take it all back. You say, Pastor Alan, how do we know that? Well, first of all, we read in the Psalms God speaking to Jesus in this prophetic voice, he says what? He says, ask of me, and I will give the nations as your inheritance. And that's exactly what we read about in Hebrews chapter one, verses one to three. If you haven't read Hebrews yet, people, you gotta read it, it'll blow your mind. It says, long ago, God spoke many times and in many ways to our ancestors through the prophets, And now in these final days, he has spoken to us through his son. God promised everything to the son as what? An inheritance. God promised to Jesus Christ, his son, the world as his inheritance. And through the son, God created the universe. The son radiates God's own glory and expresses the very character of of God, Folks, listen to me. Jesus came to take back the nations. And that's why we read in Revelations over and over and over again about the nations, the nations, the nations. There's a reason for this. It's so that you and I understand God's intention. God is going to draw out from the nations a people that he will call his very own. My question for you today is this Will you be one of those people? Do you belong to Jesus Christ today? Have you put your faith in Christ? Because He's the only hope of salvation, He's the only hope of eternal life. He's the only way that you can make it to the Father. And when you hear some false prophet, some false teacher, some bogus preacher tell you that all roads lead to God, tell them, you are a liar. You are speaking out of the pit of hell. Jesus said, no one comes to the Father except through me. And so therefore, we must put our faith in Christ and Christ alone. Amen. Hallelujah. Amen. This is who we are. We're people that belong to Jesus Christ. Now let's get back for a moment and close with this. Do you know the Cross Church is this is this will blow your mind. When I think of it every time I think of it it blows my mind. God is using Cross Church to help bring Burundi to Jesus as his inheritance. Do you know that? That's why we're involved in Burundi. We are helping in the process of presenting Burundi to Jesus as his inheritance. That's what missions work is all about. It's a fulfillment of what Jesus said before he left the planet. He said, go into all the world and preach the gospel to whom? To all nations teaching them to obey everything I have commanded and surely I'll be with you to the very end of the age, doing what? Baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. We are in the process of presenting the nations to Jesus Christ as his inheritance. And Jesus will inherit. Whether you like it, whether you're on board with it or not, Jesus will inherit his inheritance. The question is this, are you on board with it? Are you on board? Well, my friends, listen to to what God said to the Israelites in Deuteronomy. Take to heart all the words I have solemnly declared to you this day so that you may command your children to obey carefully All the words of this law. They are not just idle words for you, they are your life. Can you all look at me for a moment? This book is your life. You can't survive without it. When's the last time you read your Bible? Don't answer that question. Not out loud. The reason we're doing this series is because I need, I need to to encourage you, to exhort you, to rebuke you, to correct you, to get you on track and get you into the word of God. This book has the wisdom you need for salvation so that you can trust in Jesus Christ. It's not this book plus the philosophies, the ideas of man, and who really cares what Joyce Myers or Joel Hostein or anybody else has to say. Who cares what Alan Duncalf has to say? What we want to know is what does the scripture say? What does the word of God tell us? And are you living by this book? I'm praying that a spirit of hunger and thirst for the word of God will descend upon you. And you will go home and crack your Bibles open and start devouring it, because man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Your job is to command your children to obey. Not give them—it's not suggestions. It's not—it's not just its not just, a, it's not just a, a, a tepid. Well, did you read your Bible? You should read your Bible, you know. It's command them to obey. Command your children grandparents, great-grandparents, command your children, your great-grandchildren, your grandchildren, command them to obey the word of God. Why? Because these are the words of life. It will save them. It's a matter of life and death. You need the word of God and you need to make sure that your kids love it, embrace it and feed on it and know it and live by it. This is what God has called you to do. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you today for your word, the holy word of God, because it comes right from God, written by your finger, spoken into the hearts of the prophets. This is the authoritative word, the supernatural word of Almighty God. This are not the ideas of men. It's not the philosophies of men. It's the very words of truth. It's the, it's the rock on which we build our lives. Father, we think of the foolish man who's built his house on the sand and there's destruction all around. There's collapse all around. But those who have built their lives, on the solid rock of Christ Jesus, those who have built their lives on the truth of the word of God are those who will stand firm throughout the storms of life. Give us the grace today, we pray, to be a people who stand on the word of God, who love the word of God, who teach the word of God to our children, and who who live by these words for your glory, and for your honor. And everyone said it with me. Tell the person beside you, go read the word. Go read the word.